Good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Manitoba Farm Journal. I'm your host, Corey Canute. Coming up this afternoon, we'll hear from the president of Pulse Canada. And up first in today's country comments, we'll have details on World Wetlands Day taking place today. The latest farm news and market numbers all coming up over the next 60 minutes. The time now is 12 o'clock. Here's a look at our local news. Good afternoon. You're listening to the Manitoba Farm Journal. Today is World Wetlands Day. Josh Dillabaugh is based in Manitoba with the Nature Conservancy of Canada. You know, it's a day that um, conservation organizations and, you know, everybody around the world can celebrate the, the function of, of wetlands, which are so vitally important to so much of our natural world that um, it, it just goes to highlight the, the key role that they play, um, especially, you know, they don't quite get as much lovely press as uh, a lot of other more flashy topics do. So it, it's great to call attention to them because sometimes people forget what we have and focus on things that uh, are, are in different places. And uh, Josh, what are, what are the benefits of, of wetlands? Oh, well, uh, many, uh, depending on which angle you look at from a human perspective, like they abate floods, they are a water source during drought times, they filter our water, they um, are amazing for biodiversity. They represent at least, you know, one. they support one-third of biodiversity all across Canada and North America. So um, it, most wildlife within Canada, at some point in time, their life cycle is affected by wetlands. So these are key, key habitats to, you know, not just people, but animals, plants, insects, everything. Just fill us in on, you know, what's what's happening to these wetlands um, and how they're disappearing. Yeah, well, in southern Canada, um, as a lot of people see, uh, as development happens, these wetlands get drained and they get altered. And um, once that happens, they lose a lot of the ecological function that they have. So, you know, a drained wetland is more efficient at moving water out um, as opposed to holding on to it during those drought times. It's more efficient at moving water out as opposed to holding on to it whenever, you know, and slowing it down whenever there's a lot of water coming through. So it loses that ecological function. And then whenever it loses that function, it can't support the biodiversity, the plants, the animals, as well as it normally would if it was in its natural state. About uh, a third of Canada's plant and wildlife uh, species at risk live in, in wetlands. Um, talk about the importance there of, of the, you know, the home for these species. Yeah, like um, everything from, you know, it, where I work a lot, uh, there's, you know, yellow rail, a very reclusive bird that relies heavily on these intact ephemeral wetland systems to be able to, you know, have a home. And it, it's not just yellow rails. There's lots of different birds and, and insects, like I said, and, you know, because these habitats are becoming more rare, these species are having a harder time making a living out there on the landscape, so that's why they're becoming more rare, too, and that's why it's just more important for us to protect the wetlands that we have left. Talk about some of the work that um, you're doing in in your area there. Yeah, so, um, you know, we've done quite a bit of work in the last few years within the Douglas Marsh. So uh, we now have around 300 hectares uh, within the Douglas Marsh. So it's a unique 
um, wetland in itself, that it's kind of that ephemeral flow-through system. It's an old oxbow of the Assiniboine River. Um, it does support yellow rails and, you know, a very rare reclusive bird like I talked about earlier. It's a, considered a species of concern, um, a species at risk. So, yeah, we've been working really hard um, and had great support from the local community in Brandon and also these, the uh, central Assiniboine watershed district. So our partners are invested in the area as well, too. So that's some of the work that we've been doing within and around Brandon. That was Josh Dillabaugh with the Nature Conservancy of Canada talking to us here today on World Wetlands Day. A look at what's happening in the markets this afternoon is coming up. Good afternoon, I'm Corey Canute. Federal Agriculture Minister Marie-Claude Bebo, along with Prince Edward Island Minister of Agriculture and Land Blaise Thompson have announced details on the Surplus Potato Management Response Plan. As part of the plan, the Government of Canada will provide up to $28 million and the province of PEI up to $12.2 million. The goal is to divert as many potatoes as possible to processors, packers and food banks and minimizing the amount of surplus potatoes that must be destroyed. As part of the ongoing efforts to engage with American counterparts, last week Minister Bebo and Lawrence McCauley, Minister of Veterans Affairs and Associate Minister of National Defense and Member of Parliament for Cardigan, met with United States Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack who agreed for the United States Department of Agriculture to expedite their risk assessment of PEI table stock potatoes. Secretary Vilsack also committed to rendering a decision on exports to Puerto Rico within two weeks of the meeting. And business and industry leaders and associations joined members of the federal cabinet this week to discuss the challenges facing Canada's supply chain and to identify potential solutions. Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra said everyone who took part in the first ever supply chain summit is committed to making the country's network more efficient, resilient and reliable in the face of climate change and the pandemic. As we continue our work together, we will also continue to take action. This includes new strategies for the transportation sector workforce, new, more sustainable physical infrastructure, or making it easier for the transportation sector to adopt digital business methods. I want to stress that today's summit is not the end of the conversation. It is just the beginning. Over the coming weeks, the summit will be followed by a series of regional and industry sessions to continue the dialogue. As well, a new supply chain task force will be created to consult with industry experts and make short and long-term recommendations. And an online portal will be created for stakeholders and businesses to provide opinions and suggestions. As well, a new $50 million targeted call for proposals has been issued under the National Trade Corridors Fund to immediately relieve supply chain congestion at Canadian ports. That was a look at today's farm news. I'm Corey Canute. Good afternoon and welcome to the Prairie Eggwire for Wednesday, February 2nd. I'm Corey Canute. Coming up today, we'll hear from Pulse Canada President Greg Cherwick. This week, members of the Coalition to Fix the Container Crunch, including the Canadian Produce Marketing Association, Pulse Canada and Soy Canada, released a statement on the conclusion of the National Supply Chain Summit. Greg Cherwick is president of Pulse Canada. National Transportation Summit hosted by Transport Minister Al Gabra. Initially, they had planned to have five ministers participate, leading thematic discussions. I think by the time we got started on Monday morning, we had six federal ministers. We also had a, a few provincial ministers participate as well, and 
and that list of participants that was uh, initially invited, uh, you know, I think we saw about 53 names on the initial list. It was far more than that by the time we got going on Monday. So the agenda was very full. There were a lot of people that needed to speak and, and uh, far more that wanted to say something. Um, I think it was clear to us, at least in the beginning, that this this three to four hour session with the government would include uh, uh, people giving a long list of, of uh, issues that they wanted to see addressed, uh, probably bringing some solutions. And to be fair, that's really what was asked of all of us. But, uh, you know, we, we did approach it quite differently as an organization. We came into this not, not hoping to, you know, highlight a particular issue and in one particular solution, we wanted to make sure that we communicated something pretty effective. And that was that this thing, this, this issue of resiliency requires that we put together a good process and that we get the right people involved in the process. We see it as more than a, you know, three to four hour discussion on one day. We wanted to make sure that this thing would live beyond the transportation summit and that we would put in place a, a framework that would allow us to, to really address this critical issue of resiliency, which we think is of great strategic importance to Canada, to our particular industry. And uh, we believe that this is where you start the discussion if you want to talk about economic recovery and, and economic growth. And uh, just talk a little bit about the the container crunch, you know, what's been happening and, and just some of the issues there. Yeah, I mean, this this was a priority for us. This is, this is what I had the opportunity to raise. I mean, First of all, you know, we believe that, you know, any look at supply chain resiliency requires that you take uh, a, a specific look at, at, at supply chains in Canada, Canada's critical supply chains, and understand exactly how they function, um, understand the movement between different players in the system, understand where bottlenecks and choke points occur, and, and understand what kind of the root causes of some of those problems are. And, and for us, we think that process needs to to be to begin with with containerized freight. We we think there needs to be a containerized freight supply chain task force uh, right out of the gate. They should prioritize that. That is the supply chain that's the most dysfunctional right now. That is the one that uh, whether you're an importer or an exporter or a Canadian consumer, you feel the impact of, of the dysfunction of that supply chain every day. So that's something that that we wanted to see prioritized. Um, they, you know, in our industry, we ship on average 30% of what we export uh, via containers. And, uh, you know, since 2020, we've experienced uh, quite a roller coaster ride with, with that part of the business. Um, it began, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic with, uh, reduced product volume coming out of Asia, out of the major production region of the world and into North America, which limited the number of containers that were available to, to North American and Canadian exporters. And now on the other side of, of the pandemic, we have very strong demand and production coming out of these regions, but we have, you know, very limited supply. We have uh, carriers that are part of three major global alliances that have not made enough supply available to the shipping community. And, uh, as a result of that, uh, you know, container availability here in Canada is, is uh, hard to come by. Uh, the prices have skyrocketed for both head haul as well as the back haul movement. Uh, we've seen, 
you know, some massive uh, rate increases, uh, even associated with administration and uh, detention and what they call congestion fees that are applied with little notice. Um, you know, so all of these 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 challenges add up to to making it really difficult for for an industry that relies heavily on containers. And uh, just talk a little bit more about that supply chain task force that you mentioned. You know, what you hope comes out of that? Well, we'd like to see that Containerized Freight Supply Chain Task Force have a dual mandate. Um, first of all, we think there's an opportunity to get people into the same room that, that are part of that supply chain and look for some immediate or, or short-term solutions that, that would benefit the stakeholders. So. Often what happens when you pull everybody into the same room, you'll find out that there are things that motivate different players in different ways and that they don't completely appreciate and understand how some of the processes that they have in place frustrate other players in the system. And with just that, that you know, focus on what can be done in the here and now, we believe that there might be an opportunity to alleviate some stress from some of the players in the system. But the second part of the mandate we, we think should apply to the kind of the longer term analysis. The look at the supply chain from end to end, from origin to destination. How does product flow? Uh, what are the uh, key exchanges between different players? Where does that system tend to break down? Where are the bottlenecks and choke points? What are the vulnerabilities? And if we can understand where those things typically fail and use good information and evidence and data to inform that analysis, then we can look at what the right mix of solutions might be to fix some of those problems. And there's never one, right? So in some cases, there might be an infrastructure investment required to, to create a little bit more capacity in a particular chain. Uh, there may be a regulatory or a legislative fix that could uh, eliminate a barrier to something that's happening. Uh, there could be a need for more information and data sharing between different players. There could be uh, an opportunity for some collaboration agreements between you know, different partners within the supply chain that, that, again, alleviate a particular stress or create a little bit more buffer capacity in a supply chain. So that's really what we'd be hoping that this group would be able to do is, is take that exhaustive look at the supply chain and really look at... Um, you know, where we'd get our best return on investment in terms of the range of different solutions that exist. And, you know, on the call on Monday, uh, Perrin Beatty at the Canadian Chamber of Commerce noted that we can't be spreading our investments so thin that everyone is expected to get a little something, you know, as we look at supply chain resiliency and the investments that, that governments, provincial and federal, would be prepared to make. We need to make some hard choices. We're going to need to make decisions. And our view is that if you undertake this type of analysis, if you if you really understand where you get your best return on investment, where you'll really have um, an opportunity to create greater resiliency, that it becomes easier to make that decision, to make those hard decisions, to triage between the different options that exist, and and ensure that you get your best ROI when you make that investment. So I think that that's really you know our view of of where this thing needs to go, and and uh, you know we're. We're uh, feeling a bit positive that, as an announcement, Minister Al Gabra came out with you know two kind of key things. One was this process will continue, so you know it's not it's not a one and done thing that was was over at noon on Monday. There will be more regional and sectoral meetings, which suggests that they understand that 
we do need to segment this a little bit more and have a have a deeper discussion around this. And then secondly, they committed to establishing a supply chain task force, which will presumably get up and running here in the in the near future, uh, work through the winter and spring and put together a bit of an action plan. So there's some building blocks there, real positives in, in those two announcements, and, and we think we can work on that. That was Pulse Canada President Greg Cherwick commenting on the National Supply Chain Summit, which took place this week. That's it for the Prairie Eggwire for today. If you have any questions or opinions to share, send them to us by email to farmdesk at goldenwest.ca. I'm Corey Canute. Thanks for listening and have a great afternoon. The Prairie Eggwire will return tomorrow on the Golden West Farm Network. Time now for a look at the farm calendar. The Direct Farm Marketing Conference has moved online this year. Taking place this week until February 5th, visit directfarmmanitoba.ca for more information. Dairy Farmers of Canada Annual Policy Conference will be held online today and tomorrow. Visit their website to register. An online beekeeping for the hobbyist course begins February 2nd. Today at 7 o'clock, sessions will be held every Wednesday, excluding February 23rd until March 30th. The cost is $230. You can register with the University of Manitoba Faculty of Agriculture and Food Sciences. Looking ahead, the Manitoba Crop Alliance Combined two customer workshops begin February 6th to the 9th with sessions following February 22nd to the 25th and March 6th to the 9th. Get all the details, including registration, on the Manitoba Crop Alliance website. The Prairie Organics Conference is scheduled for February 8th and 9th at Brandon's Keystone Centre. Manitoba Forage and Grassland Association hosts, hosts the Prairie Organics Conference February 8th to the 10th in Selkirk. Visit their website for full event details. And Manitoba Beef Producers is hosting its 43rd annual general meeting February 10th at the Victoria in Brandon. There's an online option along with in-person attendance, which is subject to all public health protocols. Continuing with the Manitoba Farm Journal here on this Wednesday afternoon, Roger Burek, Research Manager with the Manitoba Forage Seed Association, spoke at the group's recent AGM and seminar. Here's a bit of his presentation. 2021 was a bit of a tricky year again. Um, as everybody knows, we had the drought. Uh, we had many different insect pressures, uh, right from flea beetles, grasshoppers. Uh, Mother Nature wasn't helping us out in May. We had some frost in some certain areas. So having said that, uh, we did manage to uh, locate enough good trial sites to do a lot of our land or to do a lot of our trials. Um, you know, having said that, uh, the drought did affect our results somewhat. Um, <clears throat> but this year, we did mainly field trials, uh, parlay timing uh, in perennial ryegrass. Uh, we were doing some parlay and manipulator trials in annual rye and meadow fescue. We had a, uh, <clears throat> a new biofertilizer called Invita. We tried some of that on some perennial ryegrass. We're doing some uh, herbicide screening once again in trefoil. And we're also trying to uh, use Liberty Canola as an establishment crop for perennial ryegrass. Uh, like I said before, we've kind of switched away from small plot and gone to large plot field scale, uh, one acre per plot trials, uh, replicated three times. Um, that way we can utilize uh, producers' equipment, um, harvest equipment, combines, things like that, 
it gets us a more representative sample of uh, what producers are bringing off the fields, uh, makes it easier for analysis, and uh, gives us kind of like a real-time uh, a real-time indication of the, of the yields that are coming off. Um, we use weighing wagons and, and grain carts to do our, our weights, and we take samples uh, off the combines for dockages and moistures at the time of harvest. Um, I guess I'll start off with the trefoil herbicide screening. Um, we had two trials this year. We we're trying to get them into large scale so that we could get yields. Um, unfortunately, we didn't get yields this year, but we did get some, some fairly good uh, tolerance data. Um, these were, well, we did run a replicated trial as well as just a field strip trial. And uh, we're once again using two products, uh, Nortron, uh, which is a sugar beet herbicide, and Classic, uh, which is a soybean herbicide. Both are currently not registered in Western Canada, uh, only in Eastern Canada. Uh, so this is unregistered uh, data, I guess. And our timing for the products, we're at the, uh, it's like a six inch rosette of the, of the trefoil. Uh, we did some small plot trials in the past uh, to try and determine a good timing for both products. And uh, our past trials have kind of indicated this was, was the, best, the best tolerance for the crop. Uh, first of all, classic, um, or else also known as chaperone, uh, same active ingredient. Uh, we've done some trials in the past, and also it's been having very good control of dandelion, um, almost season-long control. And in uh, trials in 2020, we also noticed it was having some uh, good suppression of hawksbeard in trefoil. So those being kind of... Uh, I guess troubled weeds uh, in that crop. Uh, we wanted to see how it would affect uh, later growth stages, things like that. And so we we took our our initial trials from 2020. We put them into field scale, hoping to get yields to see if there was any yield reductions this year. Unfortunately, we didn't get yields off this year, so we'll continue to try this in the future. That was Roger Burak. He's the research manager for the Manitoba Forage Seed Association. Another look at what's happening in the markets heading into the close is coming up in just a moment. Time now for another look at today's farm news. Business and industry leaders and associations joined members of the federal cabinet this week to discuss the challenges facing Canada's supply chain and to identify potential solutions in the first ever supply chain summit. Transport Minister Omar Al-Gabra added over the coming weeks, the summit will be followed by a series of regional and industry sessions to continue the dialogue. He also announced some next steps. First, to further advance our work with the industry, we will create a new supply chain task force. The task force will consult with industry representatives and make recommendations on short and long-term actions for Canada's supply chain. In addition, Transport Canada will make an online portal available for stakeholders and businesses to be able to provide opinions and suggestions. As well, a new $50 million targeted call for proposals has been issued under the National Trade Corridors Fund to immediately relieve supply chain congestion at Canadian ports. 
And Federal Ag Minister Marie-Claude Bebo, along with Prince Edward Island Minister of Agriculture and Land Boyce Thompson, have announced details on the Surplus Potato Management Response Plan. As part of the plan, the Government of Canada will provide up to $28 million and the province of PEI up to $12.2 million. The goal is to divert as many potatoes as possible to processors, packers and food banks and minimizing the amount of surplus potatoes that must be destroyed. As part of the ongoing efforts to engage with American counterparts last week, Minister Bebo and Lawrence McCauley, Minister of Veterans Affairs and Associate Minister of National Defense and Member of Parliament for Cardigan, met with U.S. Secretary of Agriculture Tom Vilsack, who agreed for the United States Department of Agriculture to expedite their risk assessment of PEI table stock potatoes. Vilsack also committed to rendering a decision on exports to Puerto Rico within two weeks of the meeting. I'll be back after this to wrap up today's program. We've come to the end of another Manitoba Farm Journal. I'm your host, Corey Canute. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach us by email, thefarmdesk at goldenwest.ca. Today's closing numbers with more in-depth commentary on what's happening in the markets is coming up at 10 to 2 on the Markets Farm Program. Thanks for listening and have a great afternoon. Hope you can join us back here tomorrow starting at 12 noon.